Hello and welcome to another episode of Talking Terror. I'm John Morrison. Today's episode was recorded on December 17th, 2018. So obviously a lot has changed since the recording of this. So we're unable to cover events that took place after that. But I'm sure uh, my discussion today with Dr. Mick Williams will still be enlightening for you all. So in today's episode, we're talking, as I said, to Dr. Mick Williams at the time of recording. Mick was was a member of the team at Georgia State University, but times change for for our interviewees in the time it takes for me to between recording and getting these podcasts ready. Mick is a great researcher looking at the science of countering violent extremism and um, and his research is something his his appreciation of the the need for metallurgical rigor uh, is second to none so i hope that you'll all get a lot from my discussion with mick but before we get to chat to mick uh, just a reminder as always that if you or anyone you know is interested in doing a master's in terrorism and counter-terrorism studies be sure to join us here at royal holloway university of london where you can study our masters offered within criminology but from an interdisciplinary perspective you'll get a chance to work on this podcast and to be engaged in a lot of the stuff that goes on here even external from lectures and seminars get involved in our research get involved in organizing events and booking guest speakers and uh, in really uh, really getting to grips with these core issues around terrorism and counterterrorism studies as always, as well, thank you so much to our sponsors, IB Taurus, who are offering you all 35% off anything from the politics or Middle East section of the, of Bloomsbury.com, of the all the books there in those categories. So just use the offer code TALKINGIBT19 when you go to checkout and get that 35% off. So... If you want to find out more about what we do here on the podcast, be sure to follow us on Twitter at terror underscore podcast and also follow me at Morrison underscore JF, where we'll be able to fill you in on everything that is coming up on the podcast and is going on with our research, the master's course and everything else as well. So enough of that. It's time for today's guest. It's great to have Mick Williams on board. Mick I've introduced you a few seconds ago, but I never got to say thank you for joining us today. So thanks. It's great to have you on board. The pleasure is mine, John. And if you'd like, you can break the news. Actually, as of three weeks from from yesterday, I won't be at Georgia State University. I have accepted a position at the American University in the Emirates in Dubai. So wow. three weeks from yesterday. Yep, that, exactly. That, Three weeks from yesterday, I begin. Uh, I, sh- I report for my first day of duty. That's brilliant. Well, congratulations, Mick, from me and from all of our listeners as well. And actually, by the time that this goes out, uh, you will have started that new job. So, so I'm sure by the time people are listening to this, you'll have settled in well and uh, and we'll all be going swimmingly. So, no, well, congratulations. I'm delighted to hear that. So Thank you, John. you're about to move to that, that new institution, but how did you start off by getting involved in this area of research? Okay, very good. Originally, my, as, a, as an undergraduate and as a doctoral student, my prim- primary area of the psychology of investigative interviewing, or as some people call it, interrogation. 
And I had several contacts, both academic and practitioner, engaged in that field. And one of the practitioners was a gentleman involved in what I consider to be the very first uh, publicly released CVE program evaluation of several programs around the world, including Indonesia, Great Britain, uh, in fact, five areas around the world. It was conducted by the Sufan Group. And this particular gentleman was the, the, pro, was the project lead for Indonesia. And it, he just did an exceptional job of it. It wasn't, it wasn't an evaluation in the sense of um, testing hypotheses or really making a judgment of, of value. It was more of a descriptive evaluation. But it intrigued me so much because it was, again, security-focused. Uh, but I thought to myself, why don't I broaden my, uh, my research endeavors outside of the psychology of interviewing? And as a matter of fact, at the university I was attending as a doctoral student, there were program evaluation courses at the doctoral level. And I thought, well, if there are these so-called uh, CVE programs cropping up around the world, someone ought to evaluate whether they're having the outcomes they expect. So at that point, I began studying program evaluation and delving into the, at that time, quite limited uh, literature on CVE programs and CVE program evaluations. So that's how it began. And since then, that has become my dominant area of, of practice. And I'm still interested in the psychology of, of investigative interviewing, but more as a more as a hobby, I'm not actually engaged in any, in any research in that area anymore. And do you see transferable skills from that original um, interest in the psychology of investigative interviewing to what you're doing today? Well, good question. Uh, yes and no. Uh, politically speaking, I'd like to say no, because the idea of investigative interviewing, people think of law enforcement and they think of trying to convict someone of a certain crime. And that is exactly not what we're trying to do with most CVE uh, initiatives, say, at the grassroots level, where you want to draw a bright line between anything law enforcement and, say, preventative type CVE programs where we're really no, we're working with people who haven't necessarily even committed a crime. So we don't want to stigmatize anybody in that respect by having a, a law enforcement flavor to the initiative. So in that sense, no. But in terms of actual skills as a researcher, I would say yes, insofar as you're dealing with uh, potentially sensitive populations. So there's ethics around confidentiality. Uh, and certainly we want to be developing theory and testing theory. We want to actually build for the future. We don't want to just do these one-off studies um, that might be sort of interesting on their own, but really don't go anywhere as far as progressing the field. So those types of skills... I guess the last thing I would say is uh, I definitely have a bent as an experimental social psychologist. By that, I mean employing not just qualitative methods, not just interviews per se or something like that, or just, uh, what can I say, narrative collecting through focus groups, what have you. It's about having a hypothesis and then testing it in the most rigorous method possible, oftentimes using the experimental method. Well, that definitely the method of choice from the um, psychology of interviewing uh, studies. That's definitely the, the standard in that area. And so I've, that has carried over, at least in my habits, with respect to evaluating and uh, helping to develop CVE-related programs. 
So we've mentioned CV a number of times here, and that's what the focus of the um, of the interview is going to be. And for the for a number of our listeners, they'll have a good uh, knowledge of what CV is. A lot of them might even be working within CV, but there are some listeners who mightn't have that that knowledge base. So, what exactly is CV, and what is it a try? Uh, what are CV programs trying to achieve, or is there? something universal they're trying to achieve, or are there different goals for different programs? Thank you, John. Uh, in a nutshell, it stands for Countering Violent Extremism, which at the very first time I ever heard that term, I absolutely despised it. And we'll, we'll get into this because, in fact, I'm not the only one who has despised it. And in fact, there are now variations on the word CVE, spoiler alert, PVE. We'll get into that. CVE... The reason I despised it is the idea was that it was trying to prevent uh, terrorism from occurring or reoccurring. By reoccurring, I mean, say, you're trying to prevent recidivism from people who are or have already been convicted of terror offenses. So the reason I hated that is let's just take my, for example, my 10-year-old nephew. If I was to enroll him in a CVE program, Countering Violent Extremism, well, He's not a violent extremist. I mean, he's he's a little terrorist in his own way, God bless his heart, but he's not uh, what most people would call a terrorist. So we're not countering a darn thing. There's nothing to counter. He's just a normal, relatively normal 10-year-old boy, and we hope to keep him you know, on this side of the, the law, so to speak. So I'm not the only one who's, who's despised that term for that reason, but for years and years, we just used the term, and it became shop talk and People just sort of know what you're talking about, quote unquote, when you say that. But other people have taken uh, more serious umbrage with it and have come up with PVE, preventing violent extremism, which then speaks more to this um, temporarily speaking upstream approach where we're trying to to use a, a medical term terminology. We're trying to keep the healthy people healthy, so to speak. Now, I'm not fond of that terminology either because it suggests that... Um, you know, people who break the law are somehow ill or bad or, you know, faulty in some way um, when really might be trying to do what they're doing out of a sense of ju- what they perceive as a sense of justice or righteousness. Anyhow, let's not go down that road unless you want to. But preventing violent extremism is the new nomenclature in many spheres, CVE being used then more in the terms of, uh, say, the, trying to prevent recidivism. Um, but nowadays, oftentimes what you'll see in the literature is C backslash PVE. So CVE, PVE, uh, they, they lump them together. So I'm not sure we're much further. Uh, I don't know that we've gained much ground in terms of the lexicon, but, but that's, that's the lay of the land as I see it. And is there a, is there a better title that you believe uh, should be put forward instead of CV and PVE? Or is, it just, uh, is there just that frustration with those two existing titles? <laughs> That's a, a wonderful question. Uh, again, others have tried to come up with certain variations on these, and they, to my ear, all end up sounding a bit awkward and, and gymnastic and, again, not really graining, gaining much yardage on the issue. I, I favor CVE. A, it's easy to say. B, it was the first to market. It's sort of like the Xerox machine. I mean, the, the machine in your office is very likely not built by the Xerox company. It's probably built by something one else. But if you say, oh, I'm going to go to the Xerox machine, everyone knows what you're talking about. And for that matter, um, in Abu Dhabi, 
we have the we have Hadaya, which is the International Center of Excellence for Countering Violent Extremism, and this is stood up by the United Nations, uh, and so we have, if you want to call it a consensus across you know, several nations across multiple continents that we're going to call it CVE. We even have a center for CVE. So, you know, we can just roll with it, knowing that CVE can be a preventative measure far upstream before any criminal behavior has occurred. It, it's, it's imperfect, but uh, I don't see that it's an impediment to um, the objectives that we're trying to achieve. And you spoke to what are the objectives. The objectives, whether it's CVE or PVE, is the same. We're trying to prevent uh, criminal behavior uh, with respect to violations of terrorism-related uh, legislation. So the purpose of today's interview, when we were emailing over and back, we decided that it would be important and good to, to have a look at the importance of an evidence base for CVE, PVE, or whatever we want to call it. What do we, what, when we're talking about the importance of an evidence base, what exactly are we talking about? What do we mean? Okay, great. Uh, so ultimately, what I believe we're talking about with an evidence base is uh, reliable replicability of findings, uh, which is also to say replicable. Uh, the ability to replicate uh, a given initiative, a given CVE program in other jurisdictions. So we're, we're, there really there's two sides to that. One is consistency in program uh, implementation, and then one would hope to find consistency at least in terms of uh, if we applied the same research method and we had different two different teams collecting the same data that they would come to substantially the same findings as, as whatever they're measuring on the dependent variable, so to speak. Um, early CVE studies, as I mentioned, were quite qualitative in terms of uh, being descriptive studies. Other studies have been uh, descriptive where they're talking about percentages of, of, of people doing this or that, but there's no comparison group. Or, it, it, by the way, I should say qualitative studies can be uh, you know, empirical and replicable, but oftentimes what we're seeing is that these studies are being reported with very vague uh, description of the methods, of the research methods. Therefore, the scientific community is just left, actually the world at large, is left to just take them on faith that their method was sound. And that, frankly, is just not scientific. So if we're talking about an evidence base, we're talking about just the good old scientific method of being very explicit about how you're going to, what you're going to measure, what you're going to compare it to, and then being very open and honest about how you went about collecting your data and analyzing the data. And uh, if you're not using hard numbers like statistics uh, or inferential statistics, if, you're, if you are just, say, using focus groups or interviews, well, then that would mean we probably need multiple uh, opinions on on what the data say. In other words, uh, inter-rater reliability, not to, I had to throw shop talk into this too much, but um, it wouldn't be enough, say, if someone gave me a ream of focus group interviews, it wouldn't be appropriate for little old me sit down and read them and code them and then report to the world what I think 
they, how they should be interpreted. Instead, there should be a round table of researchers who are reading the same transcripts, for example, and then discussing and ironing out any uh, discrepancies amongst themselves and trying to reconcile amongst themselves to the best of their scientific abilities what the findings say. So if we had that roundtable approach, then we might be relatively confident that if we had another roundtable of researchers who argued about the same ream of interviews, that they would come to the uh, substantially similar findings. So I'm getting into the weeds here a bit, John, and I apologize for that. But uh, again, it's about replicability. That And why? Because then we want to be able to, with respect to programs, that we can hopefully then uh, stand up a quote-unquote effective initiative time and again uh, in the same or perhaps testing it in different jurisdictions. And then with respect to the, the findings, of course, we just need to have policymakers need to have faith that they're being told something that um, is a relatively solid finding. And usually there's a probability level associated with that. So they wouldn't it be nice if you were a decision maker to be able to say, okay, I'm basing my decision on a finding that is you know, the data suggests uh, is has only a 5% chance of being an accidental finding, for example. So if we are to achieve this, what would some of the core principles be? You've mentioned some of them there, but if you were to outline it for practitioners, and I know in your, your brilliant blog, The Science of CV, you would often talk about the lessons for the researchers as well as the lessons for the policymakers and practitioners. What would the the core principles in achieving this uh, this evidence base be? Okay, great question, John. I th- begin with, I think, A, you, we need to be clear about what it is we're going to be measuring on any given study. What is the so-called dependent variable? And that is, who decides that? Well, it can be pr- prospectively anybody, but ultimately from a a utilization focused paradigm and that's a kind of evaluation actually utilization focused evaluation you want to pick dependent variables that'll be able to serve decision makers uh, that it's not just trivial findings that it's findings that will actually serve them okay now that that has nothing to do with necessarily the quality of the evidence but at least the target of the evidence that we're shooting for should be it, to, to use an intelligence term, actionable intelligence, findings that actually help people make decisions that can potentially improve a given circumstance. Okay, now in terms of data collection, there's two schools of thought here. One is that we should be empowering uh, organizations to do a better job of collecting their own data, analyzing their own data, coming up with their own research questions, uh, logic models, this type of thing. And in fact, there are quite a few now, uh, toolkits now to try to empower uh, organizations to do that, to be their own evaluators. Well, the other school of thought is that why, why are we doing that? Why don't we have a professional, so to speak, cadre of evaluators trained in the social sciences, trained in associated research methods, who essentially take care of that, You know, who are essentially independent parties who are brought on board a given project simply for the evaluation component. And you might be able to tell by my tone, I favor the latter. And I, th- I make this analogy. If you, <laughs> if you are needing legal services, you might say, why do you need an attorney? 
Well, that's why. You need an attorney because you don't know all the questions you don't know, for, say, for example. And that might sound arrogant, but the idea is, I, you, you might have heard that saying, the person who represents themselves in court has a fool for a client. Now, I'm putting that rather strongly, but there's a reason why it takes five, six years to get a PhD. I mean, research methods... Some of them are intuitive, and if you are a, a slave to logic, you can discover many of the principles of science just by yourself. So that's how scientists have done it for time immemorial. But the fact is, there's a lot, it's, it can be a Byzantine endeavor. I'm no, I know I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, John. It is a highly technical field of endeavor. Even just the statistic, uh, the crunching of the numbers to tell if a finding is statistically significant, I dare say that's, uh, that's not something that's going to dawn upon uh, lay practitioners how to go about doing that. I mean, the software alone is just uh, a bugger to, to handle sometimes. So uh, I'm not a fan of thinking that we're going to get very far by trying to it would be like saying we need to train everybody how to be a, a lawyer so that they can write their own wills at home. Well, that's silly when for a couple hundred dollars and a few hours of time, a professional could draw up your will for you. And it would be probably a stronger will in the end anyways. Okay, that's I'll quit using that analogy. But um, basically, getting circling back to your core question is what do we need, aside from find uh, outcomes to measure, we then need extremely sound research methods. And those are usually, since we're dealing with humans, uh, we're, we're usually dealing with then uh, the research methods of the social sciences, which is to say science, but there's the added nuances of, uh, say, how to conduct a focus group or how to word survey questions, this type of thing. Um, now, the final chapter, the third that I'd just like to mention, and we can run with this or not, is the idea of testing hypotheses. Much of the research in the CVE field thus far is not dealing with hypotheses, unfortunately. Instead, it's largely descriptive. And, and at best, they'll have some sort of comparison group, and they can say, all right, compared to the comparison group, this is what happened. But there aren't necessarily a priori predictions being made, much less a grander theory that is trying to be tested. And I think uh, it's been said that theory is, is our handle in the dark. And our theory is something that we can build uh, for the future. So we're not just doing these one-off studies because, frankly, no one cares if a given CVE program was initiative, initiative was quote-unquote successful in one little city. I mean, we're not all of these studies are, in a sense, pilot studies for a broader objective, which is developing uh, these initiatives on a larger scale and hopefully bringing our science into a greater state of generalizability. Um, so anyhow, I'll, I'll leave it at that, is that I think we should be testing hypotheses, which means we should also be developing theories. Thanks, John. Yeah, no, that's, these are really excellent points. And it's, it's not, that, that issue about testing hypotheses is something I want to circle back to later on in the in the interview, but one of the things that you've been mentioning um, are comparison groups. Um, mm -hmm. We talk we talk about in social sciences uh, the mm -hmm. the need for control groups uh, in in research like this or uh, research in in neighbouring areas to this, and it all sounds yeah that sounds great, 
But what are the problems that face within this sort of situation, within countering violent extremism, to really develop not just uh, control groups, not just comparison groups, but appropriate control and comparison groups? Great question. Well, when we're talking about experimental methods, the two key components are uh, random selection of participants. In other words, that participants are selected at random from a given population. And then random assignment. So you have those participants, that pool of you know, potential participants, then random assignment to a condition. One person gets this type of intervention, the other per people get this type of intervention, so to speak, which might be no intervention at all, so to speak. Um, so those two components. Now, in the real world of this research, the random selection is probably the hugest problem because we're talking about volunteer participants. So it's not as though we are uh, helicoptering into a given city and that we have the entire population on a list and then we just randomly recruit everybody from that list that we're we're usually dealing with volunteers so the the idea is that the people participating uh, might differ in principle from the population of interest that that can be a problem uh, then random assignment the challenge there it's that's uh, that's potentially easier to overcome. I mean, if you have a survey, you, two types of surveys, you give half of them one version of the survey, the other half another version. Or if you have two different types of interventions, you just run half of them through one intervention, the other half through the other. So that's less problematic. There can be, I'll caveat that by saying, there can be ethical issues, which uh, is, for example, if you have a CVE initiative that you in good faith believe is going to be effective and that theory suggests this will be helpful to the population, to the sample receiving the intervention, well then why would you withhold that from your comparison group, so to speak? It would seem like if you had a medication that was going to be helpful to some people, why would you withhold it from the other people? Well, again, the social sciences have dealt with this for quite some time, and there's a simple answer, which is you use what they call the waitlist control. So it's just that Today, you administer the intervention to group A, and group B is, in a sense, uh, on a waiting list. And then at a future time, say a few months down the road, then you give the intervention to the other folks, and uh, you'd, you know, you'd like to see that they enjoy the same benefits as the, the earlier group. I mean, that's, that's what you test. So uh, those are some of the ethical problems and some of the practical problems involved with, again, random selection and random assignment to condition. Yeah, no, these are these are hugely important points to, to to touch upon, and a lot of this when we're talking about the methodologies that uh, that you've mentioned and the sampling techniques that you've you've mentioned and so on, a lot of these were developed for laboratory-based social science experiments. However, when we're looking at evaluation of CVE, we're dealing with the real world rather than the laboratory-based situation. Um, and you've touched on some of the issues around that in, in your last answer, but is there anything further out, like any other further issues within these real world settings um, that w that wouldn't have um, that wouldn't have come to the fore when uh, in the in laboratory based uh, social science research? Wonderful question, John. One of the more troubling, yeah, and the answer is yes. Uh, in principle, they could appear in the laboratory, but less likely. For example. Um, attrition. By that we mean people who drop out of the study. 
So again, if we're talking about a real-world initiative, it's very likely it's it, a CVE program might be over multiple days, weeks, months. I mean, take, for example, if individuals are assigned to a mentor, okay? So you, you get your big brother or big sister who's going to, you know, in a sense, be your friend and counsel you on, on what, whatever CVE-related topics are, are of interest. Well, that's probably a relationship that spans several months, it's not just going to be meeting them over a day and having coffee and then calling it calling it good. So the idea is people might drop out of that. So someone it might not be a good fit for the mentor and then the mentorship breaks down. Well, the question is then the people who dropped out, are they somehow different than the people who stuck with the program? So at the end of at the end of a year, for example, when we evaluate was this program effective, all you're doing is measuring was it quote unquote effective for the people who stuck in there, you know, through the very end. In a sense, if you have these uh, people who drop out, the so-called attritters, well, then the question is, well, the program actually failed the attritters because they they dropped out. So the question is, maybe those attritters are the most important uh, to be serving. So if the most important people are dropping out. Then, then we don't have an effective program, so to speak. And I'm using that just as an example. We can't say that attritters are more important or less important. The fact is we, we just don't know, but we need to seriously caveat and question the effectiveness of a program um, if, there is a lot of, if there are a lot of dropouts. Um, that, that's, that's a problem. And again, that can happen in the lab, but uh, I, I believe it's less likely. And... Um- also, when we're looking at programs like these, um, probably one of the most important things to decide, and it's something that you touched upon in a number of your answers, is this issue of effectiveness. But it, the, one of the most important stages is deciding what does effectiveness look like? What is it that this, that these programs are trying to achieve? And it's. would you agree that that stage is one of the most important stages here. And what exactly do, should effectiveness look like in these programs? Then? That's a wonderful question, John. And, and I would say it's, it's the most important question to ask initially. And uh, our good friend, the good Dr. John Horgan, that would be among the very earliest questions he would ever raise. He and I have collaborated on several uh, CVE program evaluations. And that's if it he's always quick to raise that question and it is ultimately the most important question and there are t- uh, at least two schools of thought to this as well in a very general sense on a global sense so to speak the dependent variable of interest is always going to be a reduction in the risk of committing a terror related offense that's what we're hoping to achieve but the other idea is that several programs are going to have much uh, much more, perhaps, gr- less grandiose objectives, pr- not nonetheless uh, important. For example, a CV program might say, okay, well, in principle, if we bring these two, let's say, uh, ethnic groups together that have been feuding with one another, but if we bring them together to cooperate on a given project, we would see that their attitudes towards one another improve. Well, if that's the program, you know, and that pr- presumably if their attitudes towards one another improve, they're going to be less likely to, to feud with one another in the future. Okay, so I follow the chain of logic for such a program. Then the dependent variable would be you know, change in attitudes and such like that. So we need, we need to be very clear 
in that case, that the dependent variable is this change in attitudes, but that there, there is a theoretical leap of faith between that change in attitudes and then that change in behavior, which would be less likelihood to, to feud with one another. And of course, if you had the budget and the time, you could potentially track that as well. Uh, I would like to throw in um, a shout out in a sense for, again, this utilization focused approach to evaluation, which is our dependent variables need to serve the people who are potentially going to use the findings. And so what that means is you, you need to ask them what they think would be valuable information to have. And that would set the, the agenda for our dependent variables. And that might not actually have to do with countering violent extremism directly. So, for example, we might have a CVE program where we're trying to establish um, whether or not they're adhering to their own implementation plan. So what might be called a, a formative evaluation, trying to see if they, uh, if they are, in fact, implementing the program as they thought they were. Uh, you, sometimes there's a, a discrepancy between what is intended and what is actually executed. There can be other evaluations, such as trying to find ways to make a program run more efficiently, cost-effectively, so to speak. So, again, that's not directly related to reducing recidivism or something like that, but it might still serve an important objective uh, for a given CVE-related program. Uh, no, these are these are hugely, hugely important points that you're raising here. And one of the things that that always comes to mind when talking about something like this, and it's something that doesn't just relate to the evaluation of CV, but it's our whole, this whole area of terrorism studies um, at large. And it's the issue about the quality of the data that we have access to. And this is, if you go back to um, the first season of, the, of this podcast, you had that question at the end about stagnation of terrorism research and people like Kurt Braddock and others were talking about the development of the, uh, the quality of the data here. For looking at the evaluation and looking at an evidence base for CV, what does the quality of, the, of data look like and what kind of access do external evaluators have uh, to data in this regard? Okay. Another wonderful question, John. Thanks for that. It has been my observation that the, the best data collected in this field have been the ones that have been original data collected by the investigators themselves. So what that means, for example, many, many terrorism-related studies rely upon what we might call archival data. In other words, pre-established databases that show, for example, you know, the number of terror incidents occurring in a given location period of time. Well, the problem with that is if you try to do hypothesis testing on it, you're dealing with uh, dealing with basically uh, well there can be a few problems one of which is that you might be sampling on the dependent variable that I hate to throw in that shop talk but you're basically uh, not you have you don't have a very valid comparison group if you're not uh, comparing people who offend versus the general population but the other thing is that you don't have the random assignment to condition as we've just discussed so you're really doing correlational research rather than experimental research. So it's sort of like saying, you know, on a rainy day, you see more umbrellas. So the umbrellas must cause the rain. Well, no, that's not exactly how it works. So I find some of the weaker studies are those that are relying upon pre-existing databases. 
whereas the people who are going out and collecting original data for their research are able to collect data and, and hopefully obey to the best of their abilities such things as random sampling and random assignment where they are testing hypotheses and developing theory. So, uh, that, again, I think with the quality of data, we, we need to get away from these correlational studies. I mean, in a way, there's been this evolution where in the early stages, we had anecdotal evidence. We had these descriptive studies. We had interviews. We had some focus groups, but it was very descriptive. And then it evolved quickly into correlational studies where we were looking at these gigantic databases and trying to make uh, uh, trying to draw, make the case of, of certain findings based on this correlational data. And again, that was the best we had at the time. I don't fault people for doing that. It's a logical way of going. It's the best we had at the time. So why, why not try to do it? But now we're at a phase where I feel we should be stepping up the game to be doing these ex more experimental-based studies. And, uh, you know, the, I've, as far as say with my own research, the funders are glad to to fund it. So there's there's really no reason why we can't be doing that. Um, I think some of the early researchers who were doing the correlational studies were also doing that because that's what their training was in. Uh, you know, certain disciplines emphasize different methods a little bit differently. Uh, and so it's sort of like that old analogy when uh, you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So, I mean, in a way, if you're trained to work with big databases and do correlational research, that's probably what you're going to gravitate towards right away. And I'm no different, for example, as I confess, as a social psychologist, many of our methods are, are deeply rooted in the experimental method. So it's no accident that that's, the, that's my favored approach. Uh, so anyhow, that's, that's, that's where I think we need to be going is the experimental data and, and experimental methods. And not just because I favor that, but frankly, it's the way to rule out uh, alternative uh, conclusions. It's, it's really the way that science is done. I'm, it's just, I don't think anyone can argue with that. That's how we build a reliable science. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I'm within, in this building process of reliable science, one of the key, key aspects of it is transparency. And do you feel that that is uh, as important here? And do you feel that there has been an issue in regards to the transparency of these uh, these evaluations in this process, or is it something that that has been that is to an adequate standard? Oh goodness gracious! I feel largely that it is a huge problem, the transparency issue, largely, and I, I'll fault the researchers on this. Uh, there's actually two aspects to this. One is, um, you know, to what extent studies have been made publicly available, which is something of a political question. So, for example, uh, it can be quite difficult to find um, some of these studies online, for example, even though they are, some of which are not publicly available, and some of which are publicly available, but they're not well publicized. So you have to, you have to know where to dig on the internet, so to speak, to find these. And that, that's a bit of a problem, I would say, with respect to transparency. But bigger problem that I that I take is uh, the transparency in these research methods and uh, you know again just because someone's uh, title ends with the letters PhD does not make them trustworthy in my book uh, not not all PhDs are created equal let me just throw that out there by that I mean 
if you have a PhD in uh, in history or political science, that doesn't necessarily qualify you to be doing uh, experimental research. Uh, so the training for everybody's PhD and can differ quite quite dramatically. I have come to find. And so when I see or say, for example, a research proposal uh, for a grant funding or even worse, a study that's already been conducted and the methods are described in very general terms, like, for example, uh, we are going to collect interview data and then we will analyze the data for emergent themes. And based on these themes, we will do X, Y, Z. Okay, well, there are a lot of moving parts in that brief little statement. So, okay. Who is going to conduct these focus groups? How many people are going to be in these focus groups? What are the questions that are going to be posed during these focus groups? And then once you have these data, who's, as we've touched on earlier, who's going to analyze them? One person? Two people? What if the two people disagree? How are the discrepancies going to be resolved? All of these need to be made very explicit if we're to call it anything resembling science. If we're not explicit about that, then really what we're doing is a grandiose form of journalism. We're basically just interviewing people and putting it on the page as though it were fact uh, with you know minimal or dubious interpretation of those facts. But if it's to be a science, we need to have a certain consensus regarding the findings. So anyhow, that, that's squarely on our shoulders as a research community it's as though there's a black box around the research methods that people are expected to take on faith that just because someone is doctor so-and-so that they're going to do things properly. And it's, it's, if I, that would be lovely if it's the case, but it's the onus is on the researcher to, they don't, they don't deserve the benefit of the doubt. Scientists are not immune to the benefit of the doubt. We need to be explicit about what we're doing uh, to be transparent, as you said, John. Completely. Com I completely agree with everything you said there. Recently, you put out a piece with uh, a number of colleagues of yours in relation to analyzing um, call center disclaimers in relation to CV. Now, I've left that description broad because I want you to describe exactly what is it that you were looking at? What were these call center disclaimers and how is that relevant to our discussion today? And what did you, John Horgan, and your other colleagues find within this research? Oh, I'm so glad you raised that, John. Let's, we can use this as a sort of a, uh, example of, of many of the things we've touched upon. The idea of a call center with respect to CVE, just to lay the groundwork here, is that to, to give, the com give a given community a means of getting uh, referrals or other assistance for those whom they, their friends or their loved ones whom they feel might be going down a path towards violent extremism as, as, they, as they feel. Uh, and the idea is that people who are close to these um, persons of concern, friends and relatives, would be the first to notice uh, behavior that seemed abnormal for the person that might you know, be troublesome. So the idea is to give them a means of getting, uh, whether it be psychological counseling, whether it be job assistance, or even just general kind of mentoring, these types of referrals, how to empower these communities without having to necessarily involve law enforcement, because our previous research suggests the intuitively reasonable finding that individuals are loath to contact the law enforcement for fear of getting their friends or loved ones or perhaps themselves in trouble. So 
we have these call centers. Uh, at least we've been uh, talking about developing them in the United States. They do exist elsewhere in the world already. And the idea with these call centers is individuals would call in, as, as I just mentioned, to get referrals or advice, potentially. Now, the empirical question that we had for this study revolves some of the ethics of how to conduct these phone calls. So, for example, the call centers, it, it, let's use an analogy. If someone was to call in uh, and they were suicidal and they were saying to a counselor, a telephone hotline counselor, you know, that I'm thinking of k killing myself, well, the interviewer, the counselor, the telephone counselor is going to start to ask a certain set of questions to find out to assess the, the the threat level, if you will, is is this person serious about killing themselves? And if so, you know, do they have a plan? Are they is it really bona fide threat, or is this person just kind of thinking about it, so to speak? And if it is, uh, seem like they're a serious danger to themselves or others, the the call centers will in fact trace the call and ha have law enforcement show up at this person's door to try to intervene. So the question is, this person calls in perhaps believing that the call is totally confidential. But in fact, it is not. As we just mentioned, they would trace the call if necessary. Well, in the CVE sphere, the same is true, at least in the United States, that in potential, if someone were to call in, the conversation could be kept totally confidential, except at the point where if the person of concern is deemed a danger to themselves or others. And if so, well, then law enforcement will be involved. Okay, now, so the call is not completely confidential. Now, the empirical question becomes, this is going back to the utilization-focused uh, evaluation philosophy, the people who are potentially implementing these call centers, they wanted to know, okay, should we have a disclaimer when people call in and start to talk about terrorism-related issues? Should there be a disclaimer that says, once the conversation starts to drift into that territory, should the counsel, telephone counselor say, okay, just so you know, if, we, if the person we're talking about is deemed a danger to themselves or others, that I will be required to notify law enforcement. Should that disclaimer be a part of standard operating procedures for these call centers? On the one hand, the answer is yes, we should, because that way, if the police show up on their front door, they can't say they can't blame this hotline as far as being um, underhanded or being a snitch line or anything like that. In other words, everybody's operating above the board and being transparent about the policies and the procedures, and that would hopefully build faith and confidence that in this in this hotline. But the other argument is no. Of course, you should not include a disclaimer because if you give a disclaimer, then then the person calling is not going to discuss potentially important information that could help law enforcement to intervene in time to prevent some atrocity. So we probably need to keep that under wraps. Well, this is an empirical question. Should we, should we not? So we built into one of our recent evaluations uh, a survey component where individuals who participated in the survey from these given communities, uh, and, and this was done online, and we used uh, Amazon MTurk, and what we did is we sampled by sampling according to um, ethnicity and, and sex, male, female, according to the U.S. Census data. So in other words, our sample was with respect to ethnicity and with respect to sex, um, similar 
as a, a similar cross section as the U.S. as a whole. And so that we're, we're happy about that as far as our sampling data. And then we randomly assigned participants to one of two conditions. In both of this, they were asked to imagine that they were calling into a call center about a, a friend or loved one of concern. And then they were asked, you know, to what extent on a scale of one to seven would you be likely to discuss uh, any of the following crimes with the telephone counselor? And there was like 20 different, 20 plus different crimes, some of which were terrorism related, some of which were related to assault, some of which were other crimes like vandalism, these types of things. And what we varied was whether or not they were given a disclosure that said, knowing if you were to talk to this counselor that if you were to discuss terrorism-related offenses, that law enforcement would have to be notified, that was condition one, versus that the counselor would be unable to make referrals for them. That was the so-called control condition. Okay, and so what we did then, the dependent variable was the, the number and the likelihood of participants disclosing their willingness to, dis to disclose whether their friend or loved one was involved in those terrorism and other violent crime behaviors. And what we found is between those two conditions, those two disclaimers, so one about the law enforcement and one about just not being able to make referrals, we found, in fact, that there was no statistical difference in individuals' willingness to disclose those terrorism-related offenses and the violent crime-related offenses. So that's actually very good news, because what that means is that the call centers could very well put in a disclaimer no, with the evidence-based knowledge that it, doing so would not undermine, statistically speaking, would not undermine individuals' willingness to disclose the very important uh, information regarding someone's perhaps potential to commit a violent uh, extremist offense, which corroborates, if I can say, anecdotal evidence, say, from Germany where, well, for example, Daniel Kohler uh, has, has said that, at least from his perspective, from his experience, the, he always uses a disclaimer when, it, when callers uh, have accessed their, their programs. And in his opinion, in his observation, it, it didn't uh, inhibit individuals from discussing you know, important information that, about their friends and loved ones' engagement in an extremist-related activities. Well, this, is, this backs that up, only with hard data. So that... In a long-winded way, and I'm sorry for rambling, that is what we found. And so what that means is the, the policies and procedures around this, if there, at least in the U.S., again, this was based on a U.S. sample, uh, call centers can and arguably should then include such a disclaimer because it would, again, protect their reputation as far as being upfront and being candid with callers so that they're not perceived as a snitch line. Um, but the caveat is this was done with an American sample. So uh, although it corroborates findings from Germany, uh, anecdotal evidence from Germany, which suggests this might be a more global concept, again, to be scientifically skeptical, you know, it would warrant replication in, in other countries and other jurisdictions. Uh, but the finding was quite, quite strong. So at least statistically speaking, uh, I have a... I have a good feeling that it would replicate. Yeah, no, it's it's really interesting research, and to to develop on from your point there as well, to to really um, to look at this 
these data more in depth, we would want to be revisiting even that US population again and again, just to see if that is if that those findings are holding and if and if there are any changes in in regards to that, and if so, uh, when is that taking place? And that kind of and it goes back to the to the principles that you were talking about throughout the interview as well. I think it's it's a really neat example of what uh, what we've been talking about here. And where where do we see these call center um, programs uh, taking place? Question. The the one that I think is most well known is is in the UK, uh, but also similar call centers have been. I, sh- I say the UK, but also Germany. Uh, has had them. Sweden has had them, but now uh, the, I'd say the growing markets for such call centers would be in Australia, and in fact in Canada. The, the United States has been very slow to come around to this kind of concept, and in fact, there is no nationwide uh, capacity or capability for handling CVE-related calls uh, in a non-enforcement fashion in the U.S. There have been some. Uh, grassroots, just lay citizens who have established hotlines uh, for such a purpose, but that, and that's not a, a nationwide capability yet, and, and much less it hasn't been promoted very well. So it, even if we had a na- national capability in this line, uh, it wouldn't do much good unless the average citizen, so to speak, knows about it, knew, knew of its existence so that they, they could utilize it. Exactly, exactly. And and this research can be read in, in more depth for our listener if anyone wants to look at it in uh, terrorism and political violence. Isn't that right, Mick? That, that's correct. Yeah. So before just before we finish up, I just want to ask you, uh, when we're looking at this and we've been talking about your um, your adherence to hypothesis testing, to... Uh, the experimental approach with your background in, in social psychology. How, for those who would say, well, engagement in violent extremism um, and engagement uh, in terrorism is very, it's a very heterogeneous activity. It's heterogeneous actors taking part and uh, there are diversity of reasons for this as well. So therefore, this these approaches that you're advocating um, for um, for evaluating CV programs mightn't necessarily give um, give credence to this heterogeneity. How would you respond to to something like that? Well, interesting. I, th- I think that same argument can be flipped on its head. Whereas, if you're if it is truly heterogeneous, where we have men and women, people of virtually all ages several ethnic backgrounds who are potentially engaging or who have engaged uh, in terrorism offenses, well, then that suggests that they're not all that different from you know, the average citizen. In fact, I think that's what the bulk of research, if, if there's any one finding that seems to be resounding again and again, is that there's nothing particularly uh, odd from a psychological perspective about the vast majority of individuals convicted of these offenses. So that would suggest that if we're developing CVE programs, we can uh, use sample from our general populations, and that that, that is, in a sense, our target audience in many cases. Um, the, the, I guess the John, does that speak to speak to to the question? Yeah, no, that that, that definitely does. It definitely does. It's just I'm not saying that I'm uh, disagreeing with any point that you're raising, but it's just important to 
to raise these kind of these kind of issues that that some some of the listeners might be thinking well i i agree with a lot of what he's saying but how about how about uh touching on this so it's it's a uh, it's more in a way playing devil's advocate here um as well as being the interviewer but mick we've we've come up to nearly an hour this has flown by actually i've really enjoyed our discussion today um one thing i re- did actually want to finish up by asking is is are you going to continue the blog i know that uh, it was this. This the blog, the science of uh, of CVE, or is was that the title of it? Yeah, it was something like this. indeed, yeah. indeed, indeed. Um, but I haven't seen an update for a while. Are you going to be revisiting it and uh, and bring it back? Oh wow, John! Thank you for asking. I almost take that as a, as a challenge. Uh, the answer is yes. It will be continued. In fact, some of the findings that we've just discussed, the call center disclaimer study trying to condense that into a blog post that someone in with five minutes or less of time could delve into and have a, an entertaining and educating uh, romp through those that research. The idea of developing that, I think, uh, would be worthwhile. We've also, any of our empirical pieces, we've had another one recently published, I think would be fair game for the blog. The caveat is that uh, when I've got two major undertakings, at least for the next couple of months, one of which is, of course, starting the new gig at the American University in the Emirates. The other is that I'm working on the first college textbook in this area, the the science of CVE, developing and evaluating evidence-based programs. So that'll be a textbook that I have to have completed into the publisher by July. So that is uh, no small undertaking. So in a way, it's a little difficult for me to steal away to do the blog when I have this uh, contractual obligation uh, hanging over me to get this textbook done and done well and done on time. Um, but that, saying, that said, John, I think you have inspired me. I think that uh, this, if, should I have spare time, quote unquote, in the next few months, I now know what I shall do. I, I shall avoid going to the the water park in Dubai for the, for the purpose of crafting another blog uh, episode with the hope that your good self and others will enjoy it. Well, I look forward to it, but please do enjoy that those water parks as well. There's some great ones out there <laughs> as well. Mick, it's been a pleasure talking to you as always. Um, it's It's been great. I'm sure our listeners have gotten so much from it. On behalf of all of us, best of luck in the new job, I'm sure. I'm sure you're going to be brilliant there. And good luck with that, uh, that textbook. There's no one better to write it than yourself. So, uh, so thank you so much. And be sure to listen in next week where we'll have another excellent guest on talking about their expertise in terrorism, counterterrorism, CVE, etc. Watch our Twitter feed and you'll see who that could be. So follow us on at terror underscore podcast. And be sure if you're interested or anyone you know will be is interested in um, doing a master's program in terrorism and counterterrorism studies to check out our offering at Royal Holloway University of London. There are a number of scholarships available for that as well. And as always, be sure to get in touch with me if you have any interest in that. My email address is john.morrison at orhul.ac.uk and you can also follow me on Twitter at Morrison underscore JF. Okay, thanks so much, and I'll chat to you all then. Bye.